I have always been interested in how things work. I used to take things apart to see what made them tick, but I wasn't so good at putting them back together again. Understanding means that in a sense, you are in control. From the age of 14, I knew I wanted to do physics, because it was the most fundamental of the sciences. Welcome to the Ground Belief Podcast. I'm Chris Gadsden, your host, and today's episode is going to focus on the work of celebrated physicist Stephen Hawking. Hawking passed away a couple of weeks ago on March 14th, and uh, there's been a lot of talk about the influence of his work, which is, of course, profound. Um, not only did he have influence in uh, physics, astrophysics, cosmology, but also in philosophy and theology. Uh, his work on the origins of the universe intersects with uh, arguments that are traditionally made for God's existence, such as the fine-tuning argument and the cosmological argument. So as a conversation partner today, I've chosen Dr. Kenny Boyce. He's an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Missouri, and his interests are in philosophy of science, uh, philosophy of religion, and in epistemology, so I thought he'd be a perfect choice for our episode today. I thought I'd start out by talking a little bit about Kenny and his his background. You got interested in physics. Um, I, I saw at one point you mentioned that um, it had something to do with Hawking and reading him or, or seeing an interview with him or how did that go? What, what, what about Hawking was it that inspired you to go into physics? Yeah, so Hawking was one inspiration uh, that I had as a teenager and as an undergrad to go into physics. As a teenager, a high school student, I picked up A Brief History of Time at the bookstore and was really fascinated when I read it and thought that these were really interesting and fun kinds of things to think about and that motivated me to go into physics when I went when I went to college. We're just talking about physics and epistemology and philosophy and Stephen Hawking and um, I think it's easy probably for for some people who are people of faith um, to be a little bit frustrated with Hawking because of his recent, his most recent book, The Grand Design, um, and some of the comments he made about believing in God and, and coming out as an atheist, I guess. And but um, but I think it would be a mistake to to not celebrate the achievements of Stephen Hawking. Yes, I agree with that. He was uh, he he was an, an extraordinary physicist, obviously, um, also. Um, an amazing human being who overcame a lot of obstacles from his disability and he's in that way a role model for many different types of people and we should celebrate and honor his life. Were there any particular highlights to Hawking's career that that you think of when you think of you know his contribution to modern physics? So the Hawking-Penrose theorem that showed that given certain widely held assumptions, the universe had to begin in a singularity is uh, one of his celebrated achievements. Um, his research on black holes, of course. My work on black holes began with a eureka moment a few days after the birth of my daughter, Lucy. While getting into bed, 
I realized that I could apply to black holes. The causal structure theory I had developed for singularity theorems. In particular, the area of the horizon, the boundary of the black hole, would always increase. I considered how particles and fields governed by quantum theory would behave near a black hole. I was expecting that part of an incident wave would be absorbed and the remainder scattered. But to my great surprise, I found there seemed to be emission from the black hole. His interesting finding that black holes emit a kind of radiation, hmm. which is extremely bizarre when you think about it, because they're supposed to be these things that just suck everything in and don't let anything out, and yet right. they end up emit, uh, em emitting this kind of radiation. That was a that was an interesting contribution that he made yeah. to physics. So there's no question, really, that he's, I mean, one of the great scientific minds of the last century. Yeah, that's right. I mean, would do you think people would put him on the same pars with Einstein and you know I I know that there is some debate about that so some people think that he's a great physicist but not at the same level as an Einstein others think that he is at that level and probably should have received a Nobel Prize uh, since I I majored in physics but I would not claim to be a physicist I think I'll have to leave that to the physics community <laughs> to judge yeah um... Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Um, so, yeah, I, I just wanted to start off at least by celebrating Hawking a little bit and acknowledging his brilliance, his contribution, and, of course, as you mentioned, I mean, it is amazing his personal, um, what he's overcome in his, in his personal life, just struggling with ALS and the ability to continue his research um, throughout that difficulty. I mean, that, that shows incredible amount of perseverance and character and determination. Yes. The man was, was amazing, even if even if I might disagree on, on a few points, um, maybe big points, but I wanted to talk about some of the some of the things that he said in his book, The Grand Design, which came out in two thousand ten. When I when I read this book, what I see what I see in here, and there may be multiple reasons why he wrote this book or what he was trying to accomplish, but I see that he is responding to at least two of the big arguments that Christians use or theists use for God's existence. One is the cosmological or first cause argument and the other is the fine-tuning argument. Um, regarding the cosmological argument, it's usually said that if the universe had a beginning, which most scientists agree that it did, then it had to have a cause of its beginning. And that cause would have to be something external to the universe, which theists would say that's God. Um, but Hawking wants to say, no, it doesn't require an external cause, um, but that the universe could have a beginning that is in some sense self-caused or uncaused. I've, I've never been clear on exactly what he's claiming there, but somehow it doesn't need an external cause. And how does that, what's your understanding of how that would work? Yeah, so my understanding, um, when it, and when it comes to physics, I'm a layperson, but my understanding based on his description in A Brief History of Time of the No Boundary Proposal is that basically as you go back in time, as you approach the Big Bang, uh, time and space kind of get blended together. There's no longer this clear distinction between time and space. And by the time you get to the very beginning, you don't really have anything like a single point in time. 
where you can say that's the single point in time where the universe began to exist. Instead, you've got this kind of mixture of time and space where it's not really clear which is which, and there's no longer any kind of well-defined beginning. Um, so on that proposal, strictly speaking, the universe has no beginning. Even uh. though there, it has a finite past, there's no point in the past where you can say that's the point where the universe began. We are getting close to answering the age-old questions. Why are we here? Where did we come from? Now this does start to sound to me like, I mean, where science and philosophy start to start to meet. Um, because some of this is, of course, metaphysical speculation. Well, at least that's how it sounds. Um, you know, not all of that can be demonstrated by equations or experiments, right? Um, yeah, I think the boundaries between physics and metaphysics are fuzzy. And so I don't want to say definitively where one begins and one ends, but it does seem that some sub substantive claims about the nature of time and space are being made and it's not clear that they all fall within the boundaries of physics but i think the boundaries are, the boundaries there are vague okay yeah so so of course if the universe um has a beginning but it's such a beginning that doesn't require a, a cause in the traditional sense then that would probably undermine the cosmological argument or the first cause argument um, in this case, do you think it does undermine that, that argument? I think it undermines some versions of the cosmological argument, but not others. So there are some versions of the cosmological argument where a premise of the argument is that the universe did in fact have a beginning. And if something like Stephen Hawking's proposal is right, then that might be a way to deny that premise or that might falsify that premise. But there are other versions of the cosmological argument um, versions that uh, philosophers sometimes call the cosmological argument from contingency that don't require hmm. that the universe okay. had a beginning. And even in Hawking's own writings, he kind of hints at this sort of consideration. So he talks about the fact that we have these equations that describe the nature of the universe, but then he asks, what is it that breathes fire into the equations and hmm. makes for them a universe to describe? Oh. So one might still wonder why it is that there's a universe at all and one might still think that that requires some sort of explanation even if the universe didn't have a beginning even if the universe contrary to what contemporary science seems to say even if the universe always existed you might still think that there needs to be some sort of explanation right. yeah for why it exists yeah that's good and of course even even if we say, well, yes, Hawking's theory, if correct, would undermine certain versions of the cosmological argument, like the Kalam cosmological argument that, that says anything that begins to exist has a cause, and the universe began to exist, therefore it has a cause. Um, of course, that assumes that's if Hawking's theory is true, right? If is no boundary condition theory, I don't even know if it's... If it's a theory is that is that right to call it a theory or I mean is this just a proposal he's set out saying well, maybe this is how it happened yeah my understanding is that it's just a proposal to, okay. to really figure out what happened at the Big Bang we need a theory that combines general relativity with quantum mechanics and there's no 
theory like that that's universally accepted as getting it right. That's the toe, right? Yes, the, the right. The, the theory TOE, of everything. the theory yes. of everything, right? Yes. I didn't see that movie. Did you see the movie? No, un unfortunately, I, I didn't. Uh, it was a really busy time in my life when it came out, and I never, <laughs> I never got to see it. I, I definitely, that's, uh, that's on my rental list for sure. Um, or Netflix, if it ever comes on Netflix, I suppose. Even better. Yeah, yeah even better. So, um, right. So, of course, it's a proposal. It, it's an idea. I mean, it's a proposal made by such a, a mind as Stephen Hawking, so that gives it a little extra weight. But... But it's a big if, is saying, well, if the no boundary condition, if that proposal is correct, then that would undermine certain versions of the cosmo cosmological argument. But again, that's it's still an if. And I guess there may be ways to, to scientifically confirm whether Hawking was right about that, but we're not quite there yet. Is that right? That's my understanding of okay. the current situation. All right, so the other big um, argument that Hawking seems to be taking aim at is the fine-tuning argument. And... In like a couple sentences, what would you say the fine-tuning argument for God's existence is, Kenny? Okay, well, there are these constants of nature. There's the universal gravitational constant, for example, or the speed of light, or other things that are a little bit more obscure, but like the cosmological constant. And one thing that has puzzled physicists is it seems as though these constants fall within extremely narrow narrow parameters within an extremely narrow window where if they didn't fall in that window we wouldn't have a life permitting universe either because it would have collapsed immediately after the big bang or it would have expanded too quickly or because you wouldn't get the right kind of nuclear fusion processes in stars to form heavy elements so uh in some cases, the window is is ridiculously narrow, like things like one in 10 to the 50 parts or something like that. I mean, just absurdly narrow. And so some people have thought that this actually gives us some reason to think that our universe was designed, that a being who is interested in having a life-permitting universe actually selected those, the values of those constants or fine-tune them so mm. that we would have a life-permitting universe. So okay. this is often taken as evidence for a designer. Okay. So now Hawking, it seems like um, what he wants to propose, and this is not original to Hawking, but he talks about the idea of the multiverse, which is, um, now this, maybe this is a part I should have had you explain, but the <clears throat> the idea that instead of there only being one universe in existence, but there might be a multitude uh, of universes, and, and collectively we could refer to them as the multiverse. M-theory predicts that a great many universes were created out of nothing. These multiple universes can arise naturally from physical law. Maybe an infinite number of universes. Um, and um, and I guess uh, we can talk about what the reasons are for thinking that's the case, but if it were the case that there are an infinite number of universes, and if it were the case that um, somehow we could know that um, in that array of universes we'd get one of every kind, like, you know, we get universes of every imaginable uh, variation, so ones where there are 
that looks just like this one, but you know, with just very tiny little differences. You know, like you're not wearing a blue shirt, you're wearing a red shirt, or but then you have, might have a universe with nothing but one hydrogen atom in it. You know, um, so if you really have all these universes, and they could have different laws, right? And you know, an infinitely um, infinite array of, of configurations of all the physical laws, then surely you'll get one that looks like our world, that's the life permitting universe. So it's not surprising that, that there is a fine, finely tuned universe. And so that's not, there's no reason to think um, there's a designer behind the whole thing. Is that, is that roughly how, how Hawking's counter argument would work? Yeah, that's roughly how the, the counter argument from the multiverse to fine tuning goes. There, there are actually a couple of different ways that it can go. Okay. And so one way that it goes, I think, involves a probabilistic fallacy. This isn't original to me. Um, Ian Hacking, philosopher of science, noted this. Roger White developed some of Hacking's ideas. But some people think that the fact that our universe is fine-tuned is actually evidence itself that we live in a multiverse. Hmm. And yeah, it, it's for the, the sort of reason that you suggest. It, it's really surprising that we observe a fine-tuned universe um, on the, the hypothesis that there's only one, but it's not so surprising that there would be a fine-tuned universe on the hypothesis that there are many universes with all possible variations throughout. So the fact that we observe a fine-tuned universe is evidence that we uh, live in a multiverse. I think that's fallacious and there's lots to be said about it, but here's an analogy. Suppose I roll some dice here in your office mm -hmm. and a double six comes up and I think, wow, that's really improbable. Right. There must be lots of people rolling dice today. <laughs> well, that's a fallacy because whether my roll comes up a double six is probabilistically independent of right. whether anyone else's does. So if uh, the variation in these universes is supposed to be probabilistically independent, then the fact that something improbable happens here is no evidence at all that there are other trials going right, on in, right. in, in other universes. So I think that kind of objection, that we actually get evidence for theism, but also evidence for the multiverse, and they just kind of cancel each other out. That sort of objection to the fine-tuning argument is no good. Yeah. But if we had independent evidence that we lived in a multiverse with the right kind of variation, then that might undercut the kind of fine-tuning argument that we just talked about. Yeah. So um, here's an analogy for that. I win the lottery. Right. I have no idea um, how many people are playing the lottery but I know it's very improbable. The odds are one in 500 million, let's say, that I would win. And I think the fact that I won is at least some evidence that somebody out there rigged the, the, the lottery in my favor. Um, it substantially raises the hypothesis that someone rigged the lottery in my favor. Okay. I think that that's a reasonable thing for me to conclude. But then suppose I find out that actually lots and lots of people are playing and the variation among the numbers is such that um, by random chance you would expect at least one winner right. of this lottery given how many people are playing. Then I think I have, unless I've got some other evidence, I have no reason to think it's any more likely that somebody would rig the lottery in my favor. 
mm-hmm. as opposed to any of these other people's favors. So right. the prior probability of the the rigging hypothesis distributes evenly among me and all these other people. So the hypothesis that the lottery is rigged doesn't predict that I'll win any more than does the hypothesis that I win by mere chance. Mm-hmm. So under those conditions, I think learning that would undermine the rigging hypothesis. Okay. So, and things I think the multiverse story gets a little bit more complex. So this idea that the fact that our universe is fine-tuned because the constants are life-permitting um, gives us evidence for design. I think that our, that particular version of the argument is undermined if we discover we live in a multiverse with the right kind of variation. Right. But we're not done yet because it's not a given that if there's a multiverse, there are going to be life-permitting universes in the multiverse. Right, right. You could have a multiverse, for example, that just had a bunch of universes filled with hydrogen. What you have to have to have a multiverse that is going to basically guarantee you that there's life-permitting universes somewhere is you have to have a multiverse that has enough of and the right kind of right. variation across the universes. Right, right. And uh, so a philosopher, Robin Collins, has argued that a multiverse hypothesis like that uh, if it turns out to be true, that also gives us some evidence for design. Given the different kinds of possible multiverses there could be, one would expect there to be a multiverse that generated life-permitting universes, given theism, more than one would expect there to be a, universe, a multiverse that generated life-permitting universes, given naturalism. Right, right. Okay, so what you're saying is um, Hawking's... Um, argument that there's a multiverse and his his reasons to think that there might be a multiverse um, even if it turns out he's right that that doesn't automatically mean that the fine-tuning argument is dead because there are counter moves even to that because if there's a multiverse it we still need to know what is the multiverse like and it might turn out that that multiverse um, may or may not be the sort of thing that would automatically have a life-permitting universe. Now, if, if a physicist could show that, well, if there's a multiverse, it has to have at least one life-permitting universe in it, well, then that would be that would be a problem, I suppose. It's not even clear to me that that would be a problem, because that kind of argument would depend on there being specific laws of nature that are true that govern the whole Right. Multiverse. Oh, but, and that's that's the counter. That's where Collins comes in because yeah, he's going right. to say if you could show somehow that by the laws of physics or something that that a multiverse there had to be at least one universe in that multiverse that's life permitting, then you'd want to ask, well, why is the multiverse configured in such a way that it's got to produce one life permitting universe? That could be a design right there. That could yeah. be a fine tuned multiverse, right? Yeah, that's right. You might ask, why do the laws that govern the multiverse favor a life permitting multiverse as, a, <laughs> as opposed to a multiverse that doesn't permit life? So you get what's called higher order fine tuning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we've just backed up the question one level, that's all. And yes. we're still stuck with the question, why does it turn out that way? And physics there doesn't seem to be any clear reason why it had to be that way by law or necessity or something like that. Yes, right. that's right. Okay. You want some more coffee? Sure. All right. Um, all right. So, so we've covered what I think are kind of two of the big topics um, that I wanted to hit on, which is Hawking is, I think his part of his project is to undermine 
um, the cosmological argument and the fine-tuning argument by talking about how the universe could be caused from nothing or maybe not have a beginning and that no beginning sounds like that was more of um, coming from his earlier book, A Brief History of Time, whereas the grand design seemed to go a little further to say that, well, maybe it could cause itself or something. I, I don't want to get into the physics because I get lost really quick, but, but he seemed to think there were good reasons or there was at least a model or a, a theory you could come up with that could explain how the universe could come into existence without an external cause. Um, and then he, he wanted to say the multiverse would be a way of explaining why the universe is finely tuned apart from a designer of any kind. Like Galileo, I have wanted to work out my own understanding of the universe. This has been the Ground Belief Podcast. I'm Chris Gadsden. Thanks so much for tuning in. And look for our next episode. It will also be with Dr. Boyce. And we'll go a little deeper into the uh, philosophy and the epistemology of Stephen Hawking and explore his work a little further. So until then, believe well, and we'll see you next time.